The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. And the key plank of ensuring the future will be made in America. Make in India, for India, and for the world. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. Joe Biden has put Made in America and the revival of American industry right at the centre of his economic policies. He wants to bring more jobs home as a good in itself foreign policy for the middle class, they call it, but also to reduce what he sees as a dangerous reliance on China. But it is hard to do, especially when it comes to core consumer goods like clothes and toys, where China has built itself a completely dominant position. Have I mentioned recently that China makes nearly all of the world's socks? While India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi thinks India can give the world a plan B, probably more easily than the US, We'll hear how that's going in a minute. We'll also hear an economist's perspective on all this from the Milken Institute's William Lee. But first, our luxury retail reporter, Jeanette Newman, went to LA in search of a shirt. I'm walking through the fashion district in downtown LA. It's a 100-block area that's at the heart of apparel production in the U.S., but I can't really tell that from walking around. Right now I'm on Santee Alley, an outdoor shopping market that's packed with stalls and people seeking bargains. To my right, I see some knockoff Adidas sweatshirts and joggers, and to my left, I see some t-shirts that are selling for $3.99. I've been looking at the tags, and most of the clothes are made in China or elsewhere in Asia. But down at the end of this alleyway, I see one sign, one single sign, that says made in the USA. I'm going to go talk to the owner to find out a little bit more. Hello, hi, can I speak with you? Ah, claro, claro que sí. En español, no? Perfecto. Maria tells me that the leather belts she's selling are USA made. La mayoría, pues, se hace en China. But most stuff at the market is from China. She says that's because labor costs are lower there. I'm not surprised that a lot of these cheaper goods are made in China and Asia, as Maria told us. But I would have expected to see just a few more products around here that are made in L.A. After all, we're just a few blocks from 10-story brick buildings that are full of floor after floor of people cutting and sewing apparel. And right around the corner from where I am is a street where you can find roll after roll of fabrics, and also buttons and zippers, anything you could possibly need to make clothing. And the county where I am, LA County, is home to more than a quarter of all apparel manufacturing in the US. That's the largest share in the country. To learn more about why it's so hard to find made in America products at the epicenter of American apparel production, I set off to talk to some designers and factory owners in the area. L.A. is all about image and being able to create, you know, the style and the looks that influence the world. It all happens right here in downtown. That's Courtney Campbell. He's 36 years old and runs a small clothing brand called Almighty Los Angeles. 
It's one of the few boutiques I've come across in the fashion district, which surprised me. Feels like going to Little Italy in New York and struggling to find a slice of pizza. A lot of retail stores in L.A. closed during the pandemic. The bounce back has been slow, like in other city centers. But the decline in L.A. was underway before COVID-19. The number of apparel factories and shops in the city has been falling for years, succumbing to rising labor costs at home and increased competition abroad. When Courtney started designing clothes in 2017, he was able to source most of what he needed in downtown L.A. When I started, I would just walk blocks and go into a building and hit each floor and just knock on doors and say, you know, what do you guys do here or or can you do this for me? But it's become harder for Courtney to find everything he needs here. He recently bought some checkered fabric from a nearby store and then hired a small factory to cut and sew some shirts. But he couldn't find anyone to make matching baseball caps. It's very hard to find manufacturing in America for hats. And if you do find it here, most of the times they're going to send it over to China, get it made, and then and then, then just sell you the product. So he cut out the middleman and sourced the hats directly from China. China gives you that opportunity to still be able to maintain what your consumers are used to at the cost that they can afford. As Courtney expands his business, he keeps encountering hurdles to manufacture apparel in L.A. If you're going to do 100 pieces in America, it's fine. If you're going to do 1,000, then it's, it doesn't make any sense. I've spoken to a lot of apparel executives and entrepreneurs who would like to rely less on Chinese suppliers. In the past several years, the list of reasons to exit China has only gotten longer. First, there were the tariffs. Then, COVID-19 snarled supply chains and shut down factories. More recently, pandemic restrictions were abruptly lifted. And U.S. authorities have restricted the use of cotton from a Chinese region because of human rights abuses there. Meanwhile, geopolitical tensions have forced many to contemplate what would happen if China were to invade Taiwan. Despite the laundry list of hurdles, many clothing companies say they're sticking with China. It's unrealistic, they say, to think they can quickly extricate China from their supply chains. Why? For one, Chinese companies dominate the global production of yarn, cotton, polyester fabrics, and the cotton spandex used to make your work-from-home loungewear. Some U.S. executives told me that even if they've managed to stop producing in China, they remain reliant on the country for raw materials. Also, Chinese factories have machinery that's top-notch and a workforce that's highly skilled. That means they're unbeatable at making hats, for example, or sewing a certain type of stitch that doesn't chafe. And even if factories elsewhere can do those things, they often can't produce them at the same volume, price, or quality. Some firms have been moving out of China, of course to countries such as Vietnam or Cambodia. But sometimes those factories are owned by Chinese companies that are also trying to diversify outside the country. All of this is possible because China has been investing billions of dollars for decades to become the world's manufacturing powerhouse. That's turned cities like Guangzhou into supply chain marvels. Here's Lin Fang, who owns clothing factories in and around Guangzhou. If we need materials for production, we'll immediately contact our suppliers, send photos to them, and they'll deliver to us within just a few hours. Or sometimes we'll go to the wholesale markets to purchase. That's also less than a 40-minute drive away, so it'll just take up to half a day to finish the purchase. I don't think anywhere else can be that efficient in sourcing. Lin says many employees live nearby in areas populated mainly by migrant workers. Their salaries are low, which keeps a lid on costs. 
In this dense network of workers, suppliers, and infrastructure, orders are turned around quickly and at a competitive price. It's taken decades to build this ecosystem. U.S. apparel executives say it will be hard for any country to compete effectively at scale against China and its factories anytime soon. But that doesn't mean U.S. factories have given up. They're pulling out all the stops to convince American brands to produce here. That's the sound of what it takes to compete against China. It's an automated knitting machine that looks like it's printing out a sweater. I'm at Andari Fashion, a knitwear factory about 20 minutes from downtown L.A. It's been tough the past five years. That's Wei Wang, the CEO. We have to find efficiency within the factory um, to continue, I mean, to basically to be profitable. His parents moved here from Taiwan in 1991 to start the factory. After the 2008 crisis, Wei left his tech job to help his parents run Andari. He started producing for Ralph Lauren and other high-end clients that can afford to manufacture in the U.S. And he put his tech background to work by automating the factory as much as possible. Oh, it's right. It's writing the RL, right? Ralph Lauren. Right, yeah. Okay. We watch one machine embroider Ralph Lauren's initials on a polo. In another room, the automatic knitting machine spits out three separate pieces of a sweater that an employee will then sew together. The machines cost between eighty dollars to $150,000 each. So each machine is like a, a Mercedes. That's what <laughs> we usually tell people. Like, there's like well, 90 Mercedes in a park here in, the, in this factory. But not every brand can afford to produce knitwear on these machines. So even Wei has to outsource the production of some apparel to China. Listening to the sounds of his factory, Wei says he can tell the apparel industry has a tough year ahead. So usually we should be picking up uh, for the fall and holiday uh, sweater season production. But this year has been uh, slow. So we're not, I mean, it's not as loud uh, here in the, in the knitting room. Production is down by about one third at Andari. And Wei hears the same thing from factories in China and Sri Lanka. Despite all the hurdles, Wei thinks he's discovered a way to keep more brands producing at home. This is what Ralph Lauren calls a create-your-own polo shirt. Um, basically, a consumer can go to the website and pick a base style and customize it to their liking. Wei thinks clothing made on demand for a single shopper is the future of U.S. apparel production. This version of that future, though, does look a little hodgepodge. The sleeves are different color. The right sleeve and left sleeve is different. Right, it has the, the left sleeve is, is black and the right sleeve is white, and then the cuff is green and the body of the polo is blue with a red um, a red collar. So this person had very particular tastes, right, about what they about what they wanted. Right. And then you can also put a leather on the on the sleeve. Can I can't imagine anyone I know wearing this shirt. But that's kind of the point. It's one of a kind. And that allows Way to charge clients more. For brands, it reduces the amount of extra merchandise they have on hand. Also, the likelihood of returns is lower. Los Angeles factories haven't been able to go head-to-head against China on price or volume. But perhaps if they go customized cuff by customized collar, they'll have a shot at survival. That future looks a lot more colorful. For Bloomberg News, I'm Jeanette Newman. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, we're going to hear the Indian side of that story in just a minute. But first, you might remember my conversation on the sidelines of that big Milken Investment Conference in LA with their chief economist, William Lee. Well, as it happens, we also spoke about whether not making in China was a viable strategy for global business or a wise investment decision for all those big money investors gathered there in LA. Okay, I want to talk to you about decoupling in US-China because it's an endless source of conversation on this podcast, but it's also, you know, it comes up again and again. And we have had, you know, reporters coming at this story in different ways. And one thing they've noticed in the US uh, is really hard for people to source outside China. That China Plus strategy um, is proving much easier said than done. Yes. Um, and yet, it does seem like the U.S. is wanting us to reduce our vulnerability or our dependence on China. So, w- what are you seeing? I mean, how how realistic is it to think that one can have this diversification of supply chains? I think that every investor in the West looked at China at least at some point to say, "My God, look at that population! Look at that size of the market! If I just sell one of my stuff, right, one bottle of Coke." <laughs> Right, so one just one to everyone there. I'll make a fortune, um, and and so that huge size of the market was what attracted a lot of investors there. And then they discovered, my God, if I produce stuff in China, it's going to be really low cost, and I can export it to the rest of the world. Well, China, actually, that bit worked out much better than the first. The first one. It's quite yes. hard to sell to Chinese consumers. It because there's a high savings rate. Because when people earn money in China, they save it rather than spending it. But also, official policy is one where they really want domestic consumers to buy from domestic companies. Now, now, as an export engine, China has been very successful. But with COVID and the shutdowns, people recognize that it's very dangerous to have your supply chain concentrated in China. So the China Plus model. Let's see. The, the, the companies are moving out of China to Vietnam and other areas where they could take advantage of a lot of cheap labor, but also uh, you know, avoid a lot of the political flack of having uh, imported from, from China. So that, that model is there. But as you said, it's very hard for a semiconductor company to, or Apple um, to say, gee, I want to take some of my stuff and make it over in India because China really has a huge ecosystem set up to service all the facets of manufacturing. And when you try to take one or two elements out, you have to, you really can't succeed by just manufacturing someplace else. You really need the entire, to replicate the entire ecosystem. So, so for China, uh, a lot of the industries have proven to be a lot stickier. The question I think most of the, my colleagues here at Milken are, are asking which is, should I allocate an extra dollar to China now? Or should I be going to Vietnam and other places? Well, China's gone on a charm offensive to say to everyone, we're open for business, uh, be welcomed foreign capital. But if you look back at the speeches of Xi Jinping, his warning was, we want to have domestic champions. You're welcome to come here and produce, 
but you have to help us build up our national yeah. champions. And unless you do that, you're really not welcome. And I think that's the message that most investors are starting to get now, and that's the hesitancy. Uh, even without the US-China uh, conflicts, the fact that China's own domestic policies are ones where you come to China to help us become better manufacturers, period. But that's what I was amazed. So the, one, of the, one of the panels I did, as you know, at the, at the Milken conference was with asset allocate, you know, these big investors, people from big asset management companies, and of course we had Jane Fraser, the head of Citibank, and you didn't really sense any lack of enthusiasm for China. It was extraordinary. I mean, people under, yeah. people recognize the geopolitical headwinds, quote unquote, and uh, everything that's happened in the last few years, but uh, they were still, I would say, pretty gung-ho for China. Stephanie, and Stephanie, Stephanie. If you were in doing business in China, to the extent that our audience, or, or, or the people on stage were doing, and you actually said, gee, you know, the domestic policies are getting less friendly toward me. You really think you're going to be welcome <laughs> well, that's there? that's interesting. So you think they weren't being strictly... Because um, they also were talking about it. I was struck by the, one of the claims was uh, from one of the big hedge fund managers was, you know, the more China gets separated from the rest of the world, the more it decouples, the more attractive it is to me because it's going to move in different directions from the rest of the world. And when the world's going down, maybe China's going up. It's that diversification benefit. You know, again, that struck me as quite a little bit complacent. I mean, you know, what happens if the well, US government just says, no, sorry, you can't have any of those assets? And then they'll, they'll uh, use their subsidiary of Luxembourg to do the investment, right? Um, so, so I think uh, th they can avoid the U.S. sanctions. And I think that, that, that answer is actually very practical because they, they're thinking if China really indeed decouples, that huge China market is still there. They want a chunk of it. So if it means that I have to invest in the Chinese domestic champion to service that market, I'll at least get a share of that huge domestic market. And the Chinese domestic champion might start exporting to the rest of Asia, other emerging markets, Africa, Middle East. China is making inroads into places where a lot of these investors want to be. So, so just as investing in U.S. multinationals used to be one way to get international exposure, uh, if the world becomes a, a bifurcated, bipolar uh, world where China dominates and, and the U.S. dominates other parts, it's pretty smart to invest in Chinese but multinationals. It's fascinating, though, because you know, previously we would have had this model of globalization, a global capital market, and then the money's flowing to the most efficient place or the highest return place. You know, we have a segmented world that's regionalized, there's more tensions, than, you know, but somehow that makes us, we're still making the argument that that means you should be investing in India or in China rather than in the US. When I use the teach trade at, uh, at Columbia um, and, and we talk about comparative advantage, we say, oh, gee, you know, this country should make wine, this country should make machines, and, and, and they should trade with one another and just gains from trade. Comparative advantage is not static. It changes over time. And so one of the things that, that um, I think we have to recognize is that globalization where China produces all manufactured goods and is the huge supply source to the rest of the world may not be the most efficient model. You invested in China because it was low cost of low cost of labor input, but technology makes expensive labor actually more productive. So if you have the right technology in other places where labor is more expensive, call it United States, the product the more productive worker could actually be more worthwhile to invest in. We have tended to say, and actually Bloomberg Economics, we've made lots of. You know, we make some assumptions in order to have estimates of what the cost of decoupling might be. And we have tended to think 
it will mean higher prices at the margin and lower productivity at the margin, even if you're using more productive workers, that you think that's going to potentially be turned on its head? The, the gap may not be as big as you think. When you have ESG, you're missing a couple of S's there, safety, soundness, security. And so when you take the all-in costs of manufacturing in certain parts of the world and concentrate in certain parts of the world, those costs don't, the economic costs don't incorporate all of the costs that you really have to worry about. Fascinating. Well, William Lee, thank you very much. Well, Seth, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and I really feel privileged to be in your presence. <laughs> <laughs> the countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, if Made in America isn't practical for everything or everybody, could making in India be an alternative? The Prime Minister there, Narendra Modi, certainly hopes so. He's been pushing his Made in India strategy for nearly a decade. But it's fair to say the world's now paying a lot more attention. Even the multinationals that Bill Lee was mentioning there, who are sticking it out in China, now do feel the need for a Plan B supplier. They call it China Plus One. And with China's population now poised to shrink, India also stands out as the only country around with a population big enough and young enough to make up for all those workers about to retire in China and around the world. So it all looks very promising on paper, but in practice, Indian producers are struggling to supplant Chinese imports even in the domestic Indian market, let alone to compete internationally. Bloomberg's Rushi Bhatia and Vrishti Benival in New Delhi have been digging deeper. Here's their report, and it's Rushi's voice you'll hear doing the narration. We're in a Hamley store on the outskirts of New Delhi. It's a multinational toy retailer, and this is one of the biggest toy stores in the country. And yet, Alok Swain is finding it difficult to pick up something for his children. What's the five-year-old's name? Amay. Amay. And the one-year-old? Adib. Adib. Swain used to come here a lot to shop for Hot Wheels, a brand of toy cars that's loved by his boys. It's a bit expensive, but of good quality. Most importantly, it can survive the endless energy of his kids. Now he says the store doesn't offer many choices anymore. The lack of choice in toy cars might have revealed a bigger problem that Prime Minister Narendra Modi faces. Make in India, for India and for the world. He has been pushing to reduce India's reliance on Chinese imports for years. With the world's biggest youth population, India is naturally a key market for Chinese toy makers. So when Modi decided to crack a whip on trade with China, toys came on top of the list. Every metropolitan cities, there are shortage of toys. What I feel. Mm -hmm. 
Like Swain, many other customers are leaving the toy stores a bit disappointed. After Hamley's, we went to a more than a century old toy shop in Delhi called Ramchandar and Sons. There were just a couple of customers in the store when we visited. While it had a few toys imported from China, Vietnam and other Asian countries, most of the products had a made in India tag and were gathering dust. Sanjay came here looking for fine quality metallic helicopters. Yeah. Any any particular reason why you want to buy buy the toys which were manufactured in China? It's a good quality. Good cost, good quality. Do you think so. the Indian manufacturers are not able to provide that or is scalability an issue, licensing? No, India uh, cannot manufacture that quality. If India goes for the manufacturing, it will be costlier for them. The quality of the China product is far better than Indian products. It's the same tale from the US and Mexico to India and Vietnam. Most local producers will tell us, no, we really can't do what China is doing. And even if we can, it won't be at the same scale or price. But the government tried to push the envelope. To curb imports from China, Prime Minister Modi first tried to use the nationalist rhetoric, calling for boycotts. Modi's call to localize industries, India's Apex Traders Association has also announced the launch of a massive campaign to boycott Chinese products. Next came the trade barriers. Duties on Chinese toys have been raised from 20% to a whopping 70% in the last three years. And India even offered fiscal incentives on local production in certain sectors. But all that effort didn't move the needle much further. China's imports to India stood at over $100 billion in 2022, nearly double of what it gets from UAE and the US combined. China was the biggest exporter for India in 2014 when Modi came to power and it remains its biggest suppliers nine years later. That said, for some local producers, it certainly feels like a beginning of a boom. After Corona, Prime Minister uh, Mr. Modi has a great focus on toys. That's N.K. Gupta, the founder and owner of a local soft toy factory called Fanzu. Since the policy change, sales at Fanzu have more than doubled. But the rapid growth wouldn't have been possible without the raw materials like metallic pins, integrated circuits and LEDs, which Gupta gets from China. We have just introduced electronic toys, what have you said now? Gupta tells me that he needs to import more components from China now than before as he ramps up assembly in the country. The conundrum seems to be unsolvable, at least for the moment. What choice do we have? We have the choice either to cut down my finished goods imports or cut down my raw material or intermediate imports. Ajay Sahai is the Director General of the Exporters Lobby Group in India. He believes India needs to pick its battles. We have taken a choice that initially we will focusing more on the finished goods. So as of now, we are providing PLI support to those segments where finished goods are being imported. But over a period of time, once we are able to achieve that with the condition of the local content and with more competitiveness happening, I'm pretty sure the large companies will look into producing the parts and components also. 
India's plans to focus on some sectors has reaped benefits with companies like Apple moving to the country. But the jury is still out if India can break China's dominance and become the factory to the world. Which means, for Swain, the search for his kid's favourite toy car could be a tad bit longer. From New Delhi, Ruchi Bhatia and Vrishti Beniwal for Bloomberg News. That's it from this Not Made in China episode of Stephanomics. Next week, we'll be hearing from Morocco. We'll also be hearing what the man who led President Obama's trade policies thinks about the very different approach that President Biden is taking. So don't miss any of that. In the meantime, you can get a lot more economic insight and news from the Bloomberg Terminal website or app. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen, Yang Yang and Summer Sadi. With special thanks to Jeanette Newman, Danielle Wei, Bill Lee, Vrishti Benival, and Rushi Bhatia. The executive producer of Stephanomics is Molly Smith, and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Sage Bowman. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.